0: Good morning, church. It's a rich, thank you. It is a rich blessing to be with you this morning. Um, Kelly, I am I am blessed that you have given up your pulpit time this morning uh, for me to share a message uh, from God that he has really laid on my heart as I have been studying. Uh, and so thank you for coming this morning. If you knew last week that I was speaking, you may not have come. So, uh, surprise. Uh, now, I need you to, to stretch your imagination just a little bit this morning. Um, I want you to imagine... Uh, a corporate setting uh, where there's conflict. You, you really need to stretch here, okay? Uh, you think that the church has the corner on the market, but we don't. Uh, there's a fellow who is trying to lead his team uh, in his business, uh, and they were really just not getting along. Uh, there was tensions between team members, uh, there was problems, and, and they just weren't meeting their goals. And so they had a consultant come in from the outside uh, to spend a weekend with them to try and figure out what what is up. What is going on uh, in this group that is preventing them from meeting their goals? And so they played this game. Uh, and the consultant divided the group into two uh, and said, okay, the goal is to win. And they started playing the game. And one team is just racking up points and racking up points and racking up points. And the other team is, is not. And yet both teams are equally happy that they are winning. And both teams just, uh, I mean, they're on opposite ends of the numerical scale when it comes to their score. Uh, The game comes to an end, and uh, on the one team the leader was a part of, he jumps up and says, We won! I mean, we creamed you guys! We have like a thousand points, and you've got negative 20! And the other team are like, I mean, we won! What are you talking about? And this team leader just got furious and ended up storming out of the room, Uh, And the consultant explained that to one team he had told them, get as many points as possible. And to the other, get as few as possible. How you define success, how you define winning, makes all the difference in the world. What you're shooting at makes all the difference in the world. It could be said, I think, that the whole New Testament is aimed towards this. Reorienting our notions of success towards the cross of Jesus, God's vision of success. And I'm here in the midst of boomtown Calgary, although maybe not as much in the last few months, to proclaim a very unpopular gospel. But it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. No book does this more thoroughly, I think, than 1 Peter who sees the sufferings of Jesus as the model for Christian life. It's the model for marriage, for your work ethic, for your identity as a person and as a whole people, for your identity and your work as a shepherd or an elder, and even the second coming. Peter writes to a persecuted church. He writes to a church who is in the midst of suffering for their faith, And he writes so that they might stand firm. Uh, I just want to read a couple more verses that are outside my text this morning. At the end of 1 Peter in chapter 5, he writes this. uh, Chapter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you, and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. I think the true grace of God he speaks of is the whole letter he's written up to this point. And today, we're going to look at the most pervasive facet of his letter. Peter doesn't write to a church that is persecuted by a state uh, don't picture boiling pitch and Christians being thrown into it. Don't, don't picture the Colosseum and Christians being thrown to the lions. Uh, don't picture, uh, I don't know, maybe Nazi Germany coming after the Christian resistors and persecuting Jews. Don't, don't have that picture in mind when I say persecution. It's different. It's, it's persecution because these people live so differently that the people around them uh, just think their lifestyle is, is strange and won't have anything to do with them. They they don't really want to buy their products from their business. They don't want to have business dealings with them. They don't want to have social dealings with them. They're kind of ostracized. It's not a focused persecution. It's kind of a sporadic persecution. It's a people who have perhaps lost a sense of who they are. And they're starting to wonder, is this way of life really worth it? And Peter writes to say, stand fast. Peter's answer through and through is, be like Jesus. Suffer like Jesus. Jesus pray with me if you would. Father, your gospel and your son and your vision for us as a people is hard to swallow even if we've been at it for more than a decade or 2 or 5. And this morning, Father, I pray that you will you will lay on our hearts that you will impress deep on our spirits the truth of what Peter is speaking. I pray, Lord, you will give us open hearts and open minds to hear even that part of your good news that we may not want to hear. But I pray, Father, most of all, that we'll find encouragement in it because we walk the way that Jesus walked. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I would suggest that most of us have not been taught very well what it means to be a Christian. There's a lot of us who just haven't been taught very well what it means to be a Christian. For a lot of us, it's a title that we take on. Or perhaps it's an activity like going to church on Sunday. Uh, Maybe it's a certain set of morals I find particularly in the arena of uh, drugs and alcohol and dancing and sex. Maybe that's what it means to be a Christian. Perhaps it is a club that we belong to that has a special lingo. Maybe it's a view that we adopt, like our stance on politics or abortion or the Stanley Cup. For a lot of us, Christianity isn't a lot different than what I've just described. They're all add-ons and nothing substantial changes in who we are as a person, who we are as a people. It's like a certification that we frame and we put on the wall. I'm Michael Coughlin, Bachelor of Theology, Master of Divinity, Christian. And we put it up in a nice golden frame. Maybe we even put it in the center of our other degrees, but it's just another degree for a lot of us. Christians of the first century would have been absolutely appalled. They would have taken aback, perhaps even disgusted, at our understanding of Christian. In fact, if it weren't for other people around them, they wouldn't even know what we're talking about. It wasn't a name that they took on themselves. It was something that they were called. They preferred to refer to themselves as the way. Called themselves followers or disciples. Uh, Christian means something like little Christ, and based on the documents we have, it sounds like it was a derogatory term. That somehow this is an insult or a slander, not the name of a massive world religion. There was something about their lives that set them apart, that made them look different, act different, be so distinct that it caused others to give them a name that we casually apply what we understand is Christianity. Christian, at least for the, the earliest followers of Jesus, it wasn't a name that they chose for themselves, it was a name they were given, that they were maybe branded with, even beat down with. And if they're right, then many of us have missed something about what it means to be a Christian. But I praise God that we have someone like Peter. Someone like Peter to point us back towards Christ. Few people have misunderstood what it means to be like Christ than Peter. Few people have misunderstood it quite like Peter. And even fewer, I think, have understood what it means to be a little Christ like Peter. Uh, Let's just review a few of his blunders, shall we? Peter, cast your net on the other side. But Jesus, you're not a fisherman. We've been at this all night. There couldn't possibly be fish on the other side. Next thing we know, Peter is on his knees amidst the largest catch of his life, praising Jesus as Lord and in fact telling him to go away because he is sinful. Jesus calls Peter out onto the water because Peter says, prove it. And Jesus says, sure. Come on, big guy. (laughs) Peter hops out on the water and it's not but a couple steps and he looks at the waves and not Jesus anymore and he starts to sink. After confessing Jesus as the Christ in Mark chapter 8, Jesus starts saying, Okay, Peter, here's what it means that I am the Christ. It means I'm going to die and I'm gonna suffer. And Jesus says, I mean, Peter says, No, Jesus, that's not the Christ. That's not the story. You're supposed to come and tromp on all our enemies, and you're gonna make us win. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of man and not the things of God. I'm just starting. Let's review a few more. When Jesus tries to wash Peter's feet, he tells him, you can't. And Jesus says, actually, I can. And Peter says, okay, well, wash my, my hands and my head too then. And Peter just, uh, Jesus is probably just ripping out his hair at this point. Like, come on, Peter, I'm trying to teach you something. Would you, would you track with me? Peter boldly declared, even if everyone else falls away, not me. I will never disown you. And then he falls asleep in the garden while Jesus is praying. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law came to arrest Jesus, Peter drew his sword, cut off the high priest's servant's ear, and Jesus says, Stop it. It's not my way. And when the folks who are warming themselves by the fire ask Jesus, Weren't you with him? Weren't you one of them? Peter denies it once, twice, Three times Peter doesn't live up to his calling as a follower of Christ. Go figure that Peter isn't found anywhere excuse me—anywhere near the cross. Go figure he's not there when Jesus breathes his last and that he doesn't get Jesus' resurrection until Jesus appears to him directly. But you know what? Maybe that's being a little too harsh. There was an awful lot of folks that missed the resurrection. But there's few people that understood it quite like Peter. Peter and John, right off the hop in Acts, they're healing a crippled beggar. The priests and the temple guards arrest them, and they threaten Peter and John. Don't speak in this name anymore. It's not but one chapter later, Peter and John are back in the temple courts healing, preaching about Jesus. And they're arrested again. They're put in jail. But an angel lets them out and they keep preaching. They're re-arrested. They're nearly killed but beaten instead. And then they go on their way rejoicing. I found that profoundly odd. Don't you? That they are beaten and they are joyful. For them, there's something in suffering that says, I am walking like Jesus. Chapter 12 of Acts, Herod imprisons Peter with the intent of killing him, but an angel lets him out. And if history is right, Peter's end actually comes in a pretty gruesome sort of way. He is, in fact, crucified upside down. For his love and his devotion towards Jesus. Peter's walked both paths. Peter's followed Jesus Peter's way, and he's walked the path of following Jesus Jesus' way. He knew exactly what it meant to be a little Christ. Given all that he's been through then, it's no surprise, at least to me, that Peter's letter begins, it ends, it finds its center of gravity, and is filled to overflowing with Jesus. Uh, I remember hearing a story once about uh, a little girl who was at a Bible camp, and uh, the teacher uh, has a whole bunch of kids sitting around and saying, okay, we need to kind of break them of the habit that the two answers that are valid are Jesus and the Bible. Uh, we understand that, right? Most of us have been through Sunday school. We know that those are the right answers. Um, I find it ironic that at the end of all my seven years of study, that's still the right answer, by the way. On with the story. Uh, and so the teacher's trying to say, okay, let's let's try and get them to think on their feet. And says, you know, she's a squirrel kind of scampering up a tree. What, what is that? And one girl kind of hesitantly puts her hands up and says, you know, I... I think it's a squirrel, but I'm going to go with Jesus. <laughs> oh, I love children. For Peter, it's Jesus in the morning, Jesus at the noontime, and Jesus when the sun goes down. Jesus Christ sends Peter. That is, Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. God, in the book of 1 Peter, is Jesus' father. Jesus isn't God's son. Jesus' resurrection is the basis for a new hope and imperishable inheritance. Jesus' second coming is the major event that Christians look forward to. He's the reason that we live in obedience to Jesus because we'll give an account to Jesus. Jesus' spirit testified to the prophets of old about Jesus' sufferings. Jesus' precious blood buys us back from darkness. Jesus was chosen before The creation of the world. Jesus has now been revealed to us and it is through Jesus that we believe in God. Jesus is the rejected cornerstone and the stumbling block of the spiritual house that we're a part of. Jesus' unjust suffering is the reason that we suffer unjustly. It's the reason that we live submissive and good lives. Jesus died for sins for the righteous and the unrighteous and Jesus now sits at God's right hand with all powers and submission to him. Jesus suffering is the reason that we don't live for our evil human desires, but the reason that we live for the will of God. God is praised through Jesus. Christians rejoice when they get to suffer like Jesus because they bear the name of Jesus. Elders Shepherd their flock like Jesus, the chief shepherd, shepherds his flock. God calls Christians into eternal glory in Jesus. And Jesus will make those who have suffered for a little while strong, firm, steadfast. And of course, Peter ends with peace to all of you who are in Christ. Jesus permeates every corner of Peter's brain, every ounce of his thought, And Jesus flows freely from the tip of his quill. More than any other part of his life, Peter focuses on Jesus' suffering. I find it really interesting as I read through uh, the letters of the New Testament that the part of Jesus' story that they focus on is not when he walked on water. It's not when he multiplied the bread and it's not when he raised the dead the part of Jesus' life that they focus on is his death and his burial and his resurrection. I find it very interesting and it bothers me a little bit because Peter puts his finger right on it. It's Jesus' sufferings. Christians should expect suffering, Peter tells us in our passage today. If we're living good Christian lives, I wonder, uh, why should pagans persecute us? I mean, Peter's told them all the way through, keep living good lives. I think, implying that they have been living good lives. And I wonder, why is it that the pagans around them would persecute them? Uh, I mean, it's not like we're railing against them in some prophetic way. We're not knocking on their doors every day, delivering tracts. We're not uh, beating them down and telling them you're living wrong and just shaking our fist. We're not doing that. We're just living quiet lives and submission to authority. We're paying our taxes. We're serving our neighbors. So, so why are the pagans so upset why is it that we should expect suffering here's my stab at it it's kind of like a friend of mine called Jamie Grieve Uh, Jamie worked for Access Communications which is a cable company out in Regina and, and they work hard he was one of the service techs I think who hops in the car and goes out to your house and fixes stuff I remember making a call one time to get them to come fix it they were like at my house at 10.30 at night to fix my cable this is the kind of environment that he worked and So he knew how to work hard. Uh, well, the time came well, he needed to switch jobs. And so he got a job with the government, uh, legislature. And uh, I mean, just kind of assuming it was the same sort of pace, he jumped into his job with the same fervor, the same energy. And after about two weeks, uh, he had somebody come by and say, look, Jamie, you need to slow down a little bit. <laughs> You're making the rest of us look bad. <laughs> uh, and I think that what Peter was talking about might be a little bit like that. Maybe it's when we live such good lives, if our lives are such pure, pristine white, and we know they're not perfect that way, but for the sake of example, then black shows up all the more clearly. Those dark spots start to become a little clearer. And so perhaps it's that the pagans around these Christians, uh, it's not the problem with them, Uh, With the Christians it's the problem with the pagans that they're seeing things in their own lives They don't like very much and I wonder if that's part of what Peter is calling us to Uh, For Peter Christian suffering is a cause for rejoicing because it's a vivid and deep participation in Jesus In his life in his death and burial and resurrection Most of us have experienced that in baptism, but for Peter. It's an ongoing thing It's not just a one-time event And it kind of bothers me because it leads me to the question, okay, so if I'm not suffering for the sake of my faith, does that mean that I have a living faith? If the people around me aren't labeling me as a Christian, as odd, as set apart, and different, and weird, am I in fact living the life that Peter would call me to? Am I living the life that follows the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus? But there's also good news. Uh, let me back up. Uh, Christian suffering, uh, like Jesus, uh, is a particular kind of suffering. Peter doesn't let us get away with just anything. If you're cruising down the Deerfoot, 130, 140, and a cop pulls you over, and you suffer a significant ticket for it, don't count it as Christian suffering. doesn't count. Peter says, don't suffer as murderers, or as thieves, or as evildoers, or as meddlers. Um... You have to suffer like Jesus suffered. you got to suffer for doing good. And that's an awful lot harder. And I've started wondering, well, what does that look like? And why would I suffer for it? Aren't people usually pretty receptive to good? But they're not always. Uh, I mean, think about if you hear some domestic disturbance going on next door, and you go pound on the door and say, hey, what's going on? You think it's going to be well received? You want to do good and save some folks? Maybe one particular folk from another folk. Think about it. Not all good is received well. uh, And yet that's the kind of suffering that Peter is calling us to. Uh, And here's the good news. Not only is it a particular kind of suffering, and not only is it suffering that identifies very deeply with Jesus, but it is suffering that leads to glory. We don't often think about this either. Jesus didn't get resurrection before he died before he suffered, before he went to the cross. In fact, the New Testament writers are all very consistent on this. That is the path to glory. To be like Jesus is to suffer like Jesus is to receive the same reward that Jesus received. Christian suffering is a way of trusting ourselves, I think, to God's will. Um, When God calls us to not repay evil with evil, but to keep doing good, to bless and not curse. Uh, I think this is part of trusting judgment to God entirely. And When we look at suffering in the face, especially if it was a drastic suffering like what Jesus could see, I'm sure that he knew death was coming. And he said, God, I trust you, not me. Every ounce of my being wants to run. I mean, he asked for God to let this cup pass, right? Jesus knew death was coming. And yet, he paused. He reflected... And he decided your will, not my will. He trusted God to be faithful to what God said he would do. So Christian suffering is a way of trusting ourselves to God's will. I like to hold on to my comfort. I like to hold on to my stuff. I like to hold on to my rights. And sometimes following the way of Jesus means letting go of those things. Uh, And that's kind of painful. So the answer to Christian suffering for Peter right at the end of the passage is this. Do more good. If you're suffering for doing good, great. Do more good. <laughs> Get after it. Um, makes me think maybe of, of an of an athlete that trains. You know, how would you make push-ups a little less painful? Do more push-ups, and then at least the first few don't feel quite as painful. How do you make a long run a little less painful? Run more. And I wonder if that's part of what Peter is calling us to. You're doing good, and you're suffering for it. Good. Keep doing good. Keep at it maybe it'll get a little bit easier. For Peter, success means following Jesus. And following Jesus means matching your life to his, including and maybe even especially his suffering. And so if you, if we, are serious about being like Jesus... Don't be surprised if you find yourself at odds with the world around you because they have a radically different notion of what success means. Radically different. Success for the Christian has little and perhaps nothing to do with how much money you make, the career that you pursue, how high of grades you make, how much people like you, how big your house is, or how many toys that you acquire before you die. And give them away anyway. For the Christian, success has everything to do with the extent to which our lives match up with Jesus' life. Success for the Christian has everything to do with living exceedingly good lives by paying our taxes on time, by driving the speed limit. I'm guilty of this one. I'm, I'm not just pointing a finger at you, I'm pointing a finger at me. By giving quantity time to our families by being the first to introduce yourself to your neighbors, not waiting for them to come knock on your door, by doing just a bang-up job on your project, even though you know nobody else in the world, even your supervisor, is going to see that piece of your project, you still give it 150%. Living exceedingly good lives by speaking words of blessing and encouragement, especially to those who slander or insult you. This is one of the hardest, I think. Ever had a coworker who has a really sharp tongue? You'd just like to cut back, and Jesus calls us to not, because when He was led to the slaughter, He didn't utter a word of retaliation. It's a tough teaching. We live exceedingly good lives by helping those who have hurt or rejected us, and maybe even who have no desire to help themselves. Success for the Christian. Has everything to do with suffering for doing good because that's the life of Jesus. The Jesus who loved the people who rejected, abandoned, and killed him. Jesus who walked straight into all kinds of insult and injustice. That's the Jesus that we follow. And because of that, I want to say don't be surprised if you are a follower of Jesus and you suffer for doing good. It's just confirmation that you're on the same path to the same glory the same resurrection, and the same eternal life. Let's walk like Jesus this week.